Hey, this is Russell DeCarlo, and you're listening to The Northern Report. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Welcome to The Northern Report. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and I'm coming right at you from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Here on The Northern Report, I aim to shine a light on emerging and existing Canadian talent, as well as some of the legends we're still lucky to have with us. My guest on today's show is Russell DeCarl. Russell's work in Canadian Country Music Hall of Famers, Prairie Oyster, is well known nationally and internationally. Various configurations of the group remained active on and off for close to 40 years, and during this time they were awarded six Junos and more than 10 Canadian Country Music Awards. Since his 2010 debut solo album, Under the Big Big Sky, Russell has gone on to release three records under his own name and has continued to tour regularly, performing as a duo or with his trio in theaters, folk clubs, and house concerts all across Canada. If you've tuned into Boots and Saddle even semi-regularly, you know that I've got a soft spot for singing bass players, fronting a band. It was one of my earliest musical dreams and something I eventually did do for the first 10 years or so of my own career. Russell set the bar for me, a rock-solid bass player and a beautiful singer. His work and style remain a big influence on me to this day. Friends, I hope you'll enjoy my chat with one of my musical heroes, Russell DeCarl. How are you doing? I'm not bad. How are you doing, man? Well, in the big picture, I, I'm hanging in here. I live in a great spot, so it's, uh, it's good. And I have other interests that set of music, so that sure helps too, man. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a bizarre year, though. Precisely uh, <laughs> what I got going on. Like, I, I, I host a, a weekly radio program here in Winnipeg, but uh, since I've been home off the road, too, it's like, uh, I need to do shit or I'm going to get into trouble. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> exactly. Where do you live? I live northeast of Toronto, about an hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half, near a little place called Janetville. I have a, an old pioneer farm out in the country. Been there for a long time? Yeah, since 95. It's fantastic. I've got a 125 acres and a great variety of property here, so that's great. Lots of, lots of, lots of work to do, but it's just a great place to live. I have one neighbor I can't see or hear, and yeah, I'm not that far out of T.O., so <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. Did you, uh, did you grow up in Toronto? No, um, I was uh, King City. Okay. <clears throat> a kid when it was kind of a nice little town then, but it was close enough. The great thing about growing up in King was it was a nice little town, a country town kind of, but it was close enough to the city, so we weren't complete hicks from the sticks, you know. It was great. <laughs> Were you, uh, you the only one in, in the family cursed with the musical talent, or is there others? Um, others played, but um, I was the only one who really, you know, ended up playing professionally. Was there was there a lot of music being played in the house when you were growing up? Yeah, uh, radio. Yeah, <clears throat> I remember my mother singing all the time, and my dad <clears throat> played harmonica. <clears throat> but my, uh, you know, pop, pop radio then I grew up with, which informed everything I do now because it was just so less homogenized than the you know the formats. I mean, God, I even think of uh, you know Chum Radio when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, you'd hear Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, The Beatles, uh, Buck Owens. I mean, you know. Yeah, you're hearing like around. Motown and The Beatles and country music all on the same station. All, that, all at the same time, man. So, you know, all that stuff informed, yeah, informs what I do now for sure. So when did you decide you wanted to start playing then? Man, I just fell into it, you know, like I always loved singing and <clears throat> that was always good for me. And it was never, honestly, it was never really a conscious decision, man. I just kind of fell into it and started, you know, jamming with some friends. Keith Glass, for one, the uh, original, you know, the guitar player in Prairie Oster. He and I, I, I were kids together oh. in King City. His parents and my parents knew each other before he and I were born. So we, we had a long history, man. Holy and, shit, uh, I didn't realize that. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> he was much more <clears throat> musical than I was. <laughs> kind of, he taught me a lot, actually, about playing and uh yeah. So, were you playing playing guitar originally, or, or, or how did no? You get... I, I started playing bass. Uh, guitar is kind of a new thing for me, and that's all I want to do anymore, man. I I, like, I only own one or two basses anymore. I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm just uh, I'm just loving playing guitar, man. That's all I want to do anymore. So, 
bit of a bit of a weird base question. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not really into into gear and gear talk stuff myself. But I was originally a, a bass player as well. Uh, I heard somewhere that you got one of your basses uh, from Phil Lloyd. Mm-mm. No, no, <clears throat> just some, no. Just some wild rumor from the hippies. It must be. Yeah. I mean, I knew Phil really well. We were we were real good pals. They were on no, the scene, I, I guess, around the same time as you guys were. Uh, a little later for some of it. I mean, Phil was older, but he <clears throat> kind of came on the scene. I met him first when he was playing with Jerry Dallas and then uh, started the Cement City uh, Stompers. So um, that's where, you know, where I, so I, I knew him for a long time and we were, we were real good pals. So when did you move to Toronto then? I guess you had to move, move to the city at some point to, uh, to get started in the bars, right? Not really, man. I started, I, we, I moved, I moved further away from King City when I first started. My first major band with Keith was a band called the King City Slickers. And it was a, it was kind of a country bluegrass band. <clears throat> and we ended up moving up to uh, Churchill, Ontario between bradford and barry and we rented a farm we had two two houses on one farm up there and we met this other guy andre arts and uh, ian mcintyre and they were uh andre played dobro and guitar and ian played banjo keith on guitar and another friend of ours from king city bob wallace um uh and keith and i so the five of us started that band <clears throat> and uh but we were playing the scene in toronto back then we were playing the Alma Combo, oh shit, the Jarvis House, um, Midwich Cuckoo, all these joints. Christ, we used to play the, the Gasworks, and it's kind of a bluegrass unit, <laughs> and it was a rock band then because there weren't really alternative bars to play right. for us. So, I mean, we did those places, and we uh, and went on the road and played these joints where rock bands were going in and stuff, you know? You guys all, always wanted to be an original outfit, or were you playing cover tunes as well? Uh, we were doing some, some kind of coverish stuff, but mostly... <clears throat> Back then, a little bit of um, original material, but mostly cover stuff. But it, but it was obscure cover stuff. You know, we always mm -hmm. did you know something something different. So there was always a spot for us because we did something different. But you always uh, always were drawn to the country music, the tr traditional sounds. Um, oh, every, man, I mean everything. When I was a kid, I mean I loved R and B stuff. I still did all that stuff that I grew up with. You know, I mean I, I loved all the great, all that great stuff and. Um, um early pop stuff i dug but yeah i don't know how it kind of just kind of slid i always liked the country edge of stuff and then <clears throat> i don't know how we got into the bluegrassy thing uh a little bit of that i was influenced a little bit certainly by bruce and brian good who i met pretty early on and uh with the uh, the good brothers back before back when they were james and the good brothers before larry, their brother larry joined playing banjo and uh those guys were a bit of an influence and uh turned me on to some pretty pretty cool music bands like the dillards and stuff and the, so that was, was a really big influence on on, on us and then uh <clears throat> meeting this guy ian mcintyre uh he was older and a really great banjo player and really accomplished at that point and he turned us on to a lot of really great bluegrass stuff so yeah so you guys are getting away with doing the the traditional music in the rock clubs in in toronto yeah yeah it was wild yeah that's <laughs> so this the, the uh the band forms in 74 and lasts for a few years and, and then like breaks up and reforms. What's the story there? With Oyster? Um, yeah. Yeah, we split up, I think, in 77, 78, and then um, split up for a while. Keith uh, Keith had his own band. He had the Glass Band. Um, it was kind of a rock and roll R&B unit, and uh, I ended up going to play bass with him for a while, just singing harmony. I sang a few tunes and played bass with him. That was fun. And then I quit that. <clears throat> I just quit playing for a while. I went through some stuff and quit playing and did some other things and then uh got back into playing with chris whiteley and caitlin hanford they were touring and they were playing a little bar near where i was living out in the country again and i'd lived in the city before that i was i moved up to the country and um <clears throat> those guys were playing and i uh i ended up um oh sitting in with them at a club somewhere it was kind of fun. And then they called me. I ended up becoming their bass player. So I played with them for quite a while. And so we were going around playing all these clubs. And I started thinking, I kept thinking, geez, no way the Oyster would be kind of fun to do some some of these clubs with Oyster again. So we basically kind of got the band back together. In, and I guess it was about 82 or something like that. I think it was or 83 to do a reunion, uh, a couple of reunion gigs. I think we played Albert's Hall. And I don't think we played the Horseshoe, but we played um, Dollar Bills out in Kingston. And it felt so good. <clears throat> Uh, we just kind of fell back into putting it back together again. I, I think that was 83. And then 84, we recorded our first single in January 84. 
and uh, you know just when you could actually put a single out and get airplay and that did that was on uh, i can't remember the name oh christ uh, 16th avenue label this guy stan campbell and his wife stan had been a dj and he started a label he'd been a dj at ck uh cfgm the country station richmond hill so <clears throat> they put that record out <clears throat> there's a song called juke joint johnny which was an old red Solvine tune, but kind of a rockabilly country tune. And then the flip side was a tune of, we put a tune of keys on there called Give It a Little More Time. And Jukto and Johnny, man, it got played all across the country. Uh, I think we got nominated for a Juno on the strength of that one uh, single. It's crazy. We didn't win it, but it, but it was pretty incredible. So that kind of got us rolling. And then I think we, that August of that year, we put out another single. It was a cover called Rain Rain that I pulled off an old George Jones record, kind of a Latin, kind of a, wacky tune and we actually had a mariachi trumpet on it uh, chris chris whiteley played trumpet on that tune <clears throat> that was 84 and then um oh what happened then i then i guess we uh, we went in the studio with a couple producers and, and made our first record oyster tracks and those two uh, those two songs uh ended up on on oyster tracks uh as well or there were no i guess there were three songs i think i think we just put the one-sided single yeah with rain rain but you you guys had already established a fan base in southern ontario like down the 401 yeah right <clears throat> yeah we had had you been leaving ontario to perform yet not very much man i don't think we got out of ontario till about 1985 i think was 85 we went out we started uh maybe 84 i can't remember i remember playing in calgary uh, club out there and doing a we just went up for a weekend we played a club and we did a festival a maritime reunion festival at rafter six ranch out by where the hell is that that's up by canmore i think <clears throat> memory serves it's a long time ago <laughs> but you weren't doing six nighters out there no not 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 yet we didn't start doing that for, for a little while later so after the first record comes out in 1986, it's on Stony Plain Records. Like, do, does, do things really change for you guys as far as uh, you're no longer having to do six nighters and you're doing more, you know, events and shows? Oh, uh, we were still doing a lot of six nighters then, or <clears throat> weekends and clubs. We were still doing a lot of clubs then, <clears throat> but we started doing some festival stuff, <clears throat> and we pretty early. I mean, we're lucky. I mean, we, we kind of knocked it out of the park with that first uh, album. We did we did really well on airplay wise and we we won our first juno award on that on that record and that must have that must have changed everything bigger rooms bigger it, it audiences. changed a lot of stuff for sure and then of course we got involved in the kind of the country music scene I mean, we, we we never really were part of that whole country music scene really and people kind of poo-pooed us on, in a way until we started getting really popular and then of course they embraced us but it's kind of wacky and i mean that was always the, a lot of the success with our group is that we really appealed to a broad audience not just the country audience right we appealed to a huge audience but you guys seems to me that uh, you were essentially the last actual country music band that found success and received commercial radio and video play in canada like was that something that you guys were aware of and, and consciously trying to maintain that approach well that's just just how we operated you know we had our kind of everything in-house you know at that point we were writing most of our own songs and certainly we started co-producing on records a little later on um but we uh, you know, we always kind of called the shots with our label too, and we we got signed to an American label right out of the out of the box after after Stony Plain. Like we weren't looking for a Canadian label because in those days it was like a Canadian record sell ten thousand copies, and that was a, a big deal. Well, we uh, <clears throat> we started shopping in the states, and we had some publishing interest, and then we had a bunch of major labels interested, and we got to sign. We signed with uh, our RCA. BMG, which was Joe Galante, who at that point, he was the heaviest guy in the world. He was the first guy to ever sell a million copies of a country record. And uh, uh, so he signed us and took us under his wing. It was amazing for us. So that really, I mean, a lot of people in Canada at that point, then we started touring a ton up here, but a lot of people thought we were an American band because in those days we were getting played on like CMT, for instance, or not CMT, but it was pre-CMT, uh, National Network used to play videos <clears throat> and there was no Canadian video. Well, much music would play us as well, but um, uh, the American stuff that we got played on, like we had, we had number one videos down there. It was incredible. Um, so people, you know, that's when video really did make a difference. People started to see you, you know. Oh yeah, like TV made such a huge difference back then. It, it did, yeah. It, <clears throat> later on, <clears throat> not so much, but it sure did then. And uh, and it sh and it sure did for us. It was huge. We made some really good videos, and 
so that was kind of part of the part of part and parcel of the whole thing, you know. And we were touring in the states a ton. Right. Okay. I was going to ask if that was always kind of a goal for you guys was to break into that market. I don't know if it was a goal. We never, you know what? We never really had like the big goal saying, okay, we want to do this, we want to do that. We weren't those kind of guys. I mean, now it's like, you, you know, you read these interviews with artists and everybody's gone to Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt to take a, uh, you know, a, a business course in music first. And I mean, and we were certainly not, not those guys. It was just kind of, <laughs> it was pretty organic <laughs> the way things were going for us. So what was what was the response like in the United States and what kind of rooms were you guys playing down there? It was fantastic. We did a bunch of festivals. We did uh, some huge clubs. We did some, you know, smaller clubs. We did some, it's kind of the land of the bad PA, a lot of it. So we had good crew guys that would rebuild PA so we could put a show on. But we played all over the place. The response was fantastic. Um, uh, mostly we sold some records. <clears throat> I think the highest we did was, well, we, I know we had a top 30 record, the first single. It was a tune I wrote with Willie P. Bennett and some other stuff, but we did have a number one video. So that helped. Cause I mean, we'd be tour men. We'd be in New Mexico somewhere, pulling over to get gas and or fuel up the bus and stuff. And people would recognize us, you know? So it was, it was kind of interesting. But critically, we did really well down there. We had incredible amount of press. People really dug what we were doing. It was kind of, cause we were leaning more to the traditional stuff. And at that point, uh, you know, we, we were in, we were in company then it looked like something was really going to happen back then. I mean, you know, 86, man, that, that kind of, period that was when you know lyle was getting played on country radio and steve mm. earl and dwight and uh us and uh it was that kind of scene like we were signed to rca so there was a couple different schools at rca but we hung out with like uh radney and bill foster and lloyd remember those guys oh, yeah for sure so th they're real good pals and they were so we were label mates and, and uh matresa berg was signed and joel sonye <clears throat> I'm trying to think. We were kind of the funkier acts on that label. And then there was, oh, and KT Ozen, who was amazing. But Clint Black was on the label. And uh, Chris, I don't know. The, I guess the Oakridge Boys were Alabama, which we didn't really hang out with those guys. Um, <laughs> who else? Uh, oh, I don't know. But anyway. did a couple records for RCA. Oh, we did, oh, we did uh, three, I guess. Well, <clears throat> then we kind of lost that kind of went south. Joe Galante went to New York to run the pop division and, and the label kind of fell apart when he left, sadly. Joe Joe was just an amazing guy and we were his priority. We were a priority for him. So um then we uh kind of stuck with Canada because we it was a co-signing kind of with Canada. So <clears throat> and we kind of we called the shots on that stuff up here pretty much our own our own thing. And uh, we had a few other labels down there that we ended up <clears throat> putting records out with on the States and toured. Some uh, notable names in the studio with you guys, Steve Berlin, Richard Burnett, like uh, Richard Bennett, pardon me. Uh, oh, uh, Richard, yeah, one of the great guitar players of all time, yeah. Yeah, Steve, well, Steve was a good buddy because he, uh, we met Steve um, when he was playing with the Blasters originally and then Los Lobos, so he was he was a pal of ours. So we, we, yeah, we got him to produce our first, uh, that we recorded out at Grant Avenue. Um, with, with Bob Deutsch out in at Grant uh, in Hamilton, and then we mixed that record in uh, with Steve uh, Mark Antonio, who was really who had, at that point had worked uh, with um, uh, Rodney and Roseanne. We got him to Steve Keith and I went down to Hollywood and mixed that with him uh, in Toluca Lake in L.A. So you guys uh, were, were 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 some of these producers and studio folks at, at the label's insistence or was this did you guys you know get to get to make your own calls as far as that goes i think steve was yeah we, we suggested steve and they thought yeah that's a good idea just just make us a record to sound. all they you know Golanti was amazing he said man make us a record to sound like the demos you played for us nice. so we said okay so we were kind of left on our own and then the next um uh record which was the biggest one uh that was Josh Hill. Josh ended, ended up becoming head of A&R down there. Josh's a really great guitar player. He's a California guy that transplanted to Nashville. And Richard Bennett. Richard is just an amazing cat. Um, you probably know, know his history, but uh, he was amazing. He was like an 18-year-old, three-session-a-day guy. He was from uh, Arizona originally and was mentored by this guy, Al Harris, who was an amazing guitar player, session player, part of the King crew. And session guy then ended up being, uh, I think, worked with Neil Diamond for about 17 years. Then uh, kind of quit that stuff and moved to Nashville and, of course, played all the guitars on uh, Guitar Town and Exit Zero. Yeah. I mean, he's really the guy. I mean, Tony uh, Brown gets the credit for producing that record. But, man, all those amazing uh, lines and all that stuff, man, that's all Richard. And he's, like, plugged right into the board or something, too, right? Like, it's... Uh... A lot of it. Yeah. It's, uh, like, all that great six-string bass stuff and the rhythm guitar. He's, like, the greatest rhythm guitar player, man. And he plays, like, those old cats with his wrist and <clears throat> he was amazing. So 
learned a lot from him. And that was a big record. That was a huge record for us. Um, uh, uh, everybody knows that record. And you guys remained pretty hands-on as far as like, you know, you, with co-producing credits as a band, like we, you were pretty involved in the, in the, in the sort of production decisions. Oh, totally. Come all completely. Yeah. And we were one of the few bands that actually played on our own records. Hardly any bands played on their own records. Uh, I'm just I'm wondering how you guys chose the material mainly for the albums, but also live, because I know there's a number of you guys that were contributing to the songwriting, and you also co-wrote tunes uh, with you know with other folks. Uh, so how how did that go? Were were you people bringing songs to the band, and then you're sort of hashing them out, or? Yeah, I mean we would get stuff certainly on, um, and we were kind of. Uh, you know, I wish I'd been writing more then because we had the opportunity to write with everyone. Keith took uh, that opportunity and, and co-wrote with some uh, really heavy because we, we we were like taken right into the fold there, man. We could have written with the heaviest cats in town. Um, it was great. And and we were getting material from the heaviest because we had a major label sonic. So people were getting this material, uh, not a lot of which we cut really. And in retrospect, we probably should have cut some of it because a lot of it became huge hits afterwards. Um, I've still got, you know, a milk case here full of carton, full of cassettes of demos that I need to go through at some point of that we were getting from these people, you know, and, uh, but Keith and Joan wrote the lion's share of the early stuff. I didn't really start writing till I think I had one song on that record and, uh, on the, everybody knows. And then, uh, the next record I wrote, uh, such a lonely one. That was a big record. I think that was our first number one single. That was a big, big record for us. Um, and then the later record I wrote by three songs. I wrote, uh, well, I guess our, no, our first, first record I, I co-wrote, um, Goodbye, so long, hello, with Willie P. Bennett. So that was our first Ameri- That was our first American release. That song. But Keith and Joan wrote the lion's share, and the other material. Uh, you know, we had we, uh, sometimes. You know, producer the uh, producer would bring us material that, that they want. They thought we should maybe do, and we did. We did that a bit. I don't think we recorded too much that we didn't really want to record. I think maybe a, maybe a tune or two was on there that was kind of like, yeah, I don't know, that we never really played live. But you know, you. Uh... You cut songs that Willie P wrote, and you co-wrote tunes with them. You uh, got any good uh, Willie P Bennett stories you'd be willing to share? Oh well, I mean stories. I mean you know, I don't know stories. I mean we we weren't just like musical friends. We were we were we were best pals, man. So you know, it's just uh, I, I think about him every day. I miss him every day. <clears throat> he was an amazing musician. I mean, we had a, had a lot of hang time together. You know, I mean, to say he's one of my best friends, and we met. Oh God. Uh, at the American House before Prairie Oyster started, back about 1973 or four, I was doing a trio with Keith Glass and Alistair Dennett, our original drummer, and his mother actually named the band Prairie Oyster. We were playing at the American House in uh, Peterborough, which is now the Red Dog. Willie was playing up at uh, a place called The Hangman. It was a coffee house up at the um, at the University at Trenton. I knew about him because I had some friends that had played with him and I'd heard about him and he knew about us, obviously. So he and Mike Gardner, who was a bass player and this guy, Banjo Dan West, um, came down to see us play after their show. And I, and that's what's right for, I remember meeting him like it was yesterday. Anyway, we, we became great pals. I don't really have any stories per se, but he was the one who really kind of kicked my ass, got me songwriting. We were out one night and we were, we were, we were at a few bars downtown. We lived uh, kind of, we were neighbors over by High, High Park for a while and, <clears throat> we'd go out at night on our bicycles riding around Toronto and we'd go bar hopping and stuff. And we were one night, he said, I've got this idea for this song. It's good. speaking of Phil Lloyd. So one of Phil Lloyd's catch things was hello. That was one that he was, it sounds goofy. To, yeah. But that was his hello, Phil Lloyd. Hello. And, and Willie knew Phil really, really well as well. We both did. So he said, I've got this uh, idea for the song. It's called goodbye. So long. Hello. And you need to write it with me. I went, well, okay, whatever. So we went up, we were out all night, we were a lot of the night, and we went up, ended up back at his place in his music room, in the basement of his place, and we started working on that song. So that was the first thing. He kind of kicked my ass and got that. And we, we finished that song off, and he recorded it, and we recorded it, and it became a big single for us. That's a great one, yeah. Hey there again, folks. As we approach the halfway point of today's episode, I'd like to thank you once again for tuning in. You're listening to the Northern Report Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Burns. And our guest today is Russell DeCarl. I'll remind you to follow along with the Northern Report podcast and our playlist on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Listen on YouTube, our Anchor.fm page, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It was an interesting and confusing time on country radio during the 1980s and into the 90s. Country and roots music fans all over the world welcomed the emergence of folks like Lyle Lovett, Steve Earle, and Dwight Yoakam. But commercial country radio? Well, that's always been another story altogether. Somehow, though, here in Canada, and even into the United States, Prairie Oyster found success on commercial radio and had their videos regularly played on television despite maintaining a largely traditional sound and approach to their music. You could argue that they were the last actual country music band to see this type of commercial success here in Canada. But you know as well as I do, all good things are destined to come to an end. You guys, uh, you guys recorded some really outstanding covers, uh, traditional country music songs like Am I That Easy to Forget and I Don't Hurt Anymore. Did uh, I Threw It All Away, the Dylan tune. Like, Were these tunes that you were playing live or picked specifically to cover for the records? Uh, yeah, um, Am I That Easy to Forget, I always loved that song. We've been doing that song in our live show. We did a little more Heart and Beast down. Richard really got us to do it more like the original Carl Ballou version. Um, and uh, Don't Hurt Anymore, that song for me, uh, has been one of my favorite songs since I was a little kid. I always loved that song. I still do that song in my own show. Um, and um, what else did we do? Oh, we did Goodbye Lonesome, Hello Baby to All. I think I, I chose that, picked that song, that Johnny Horton tune. That's a great one. Um, yeah. What was the other? What was another one you just mentioned? Oh, you did a Dylan tune and... Uh, oh, the Dylan tune. Yeah. And I always loved that song. And I had started doing that Dylan song on my own at that point. Before we made our last record, the last oyster record one kiss i'd been starting already to do my own shows always loved that song and i, I was i was doing that and i was going to do i was going to record that myself and then that would do it with the band and i thought we did I, I loved our version of it i thought we did a really good version of that song it's just i think well we did it justice anyway i feel like we did really proud of that last record it was funny though man i'll tell you you know had taking a few years off i figured it'd be a slam dunk you know we make a new record and you know, we'd sold so many albums and the band had done so what man, we could barely get arrested on radio once we once we came back to recording again. It was bizarre to me. I just thought this is so weird. Uh, I remember being at the Canadian Country Music Awards and uh, we had uh, received our we went out to do our uh, uh, for the Country Music Hall of Fame. We were inducted. And that was nice. But I mean, we had a new record that year, man. We could have used a leg up as much as anyone. They didn't give us the award on television. I didn't even stick around for the TV show. I think Joan and John did because I just did, went and did our dinner that thing, and then I I, can't, I flew home because it was just I thought this is crazy, man. And we didn't really have anyone shilling for us at that point, going, "Hey, man, these guys should be playing on the show." You know, that would have been the classy thing for those people to do. Actually, have us play on the show. And uh, I think it was the year after that I wanted to do something, a present or something on that show, and. I really look I looking around the audience that year thinking that man, one of our shittiest selling records would have sold more than everybody put together that was on that show that year. Yeah. And uh meanwhile, you know, you know, we didn't have a major label kind of uh going, hey, no, you know, anyway, whatever. I mean, that's not really sour grapes, it's just kind of like, boy, it made me think like, Jesus, this is yeah, this was pretty weird. So the band after that last record, you guys kind of still went at it for a couple more years before you Yeah, I think we toured, you know, uh not a ton, but we toured uh yeah, probably a couple more years. And then um, I just kind of, I guess I'd started to make my solo record at that point. I mean, originally, the, 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 the way that last record came about was I was at Factor looking to see about getting a, a grant for, for me to do a solo record. And um, uh, Heather Ostertag was still at Factor. Then she said, you know, you could probably get, um, you know, money to make a record from uh, through uh, direct board approval. That means you've had because of our past it would be like yeah you can get you know a fair chunk of change to do just because we have a, you know we've we've made we made quite a dent which we did so i thought well <clears throat> i guess oyster could probably she said or oyster could do that so um i took called keith and i said look you know we we can probably get money to make a uh, make our own record make a make an oyster record again so he and i went i brought him in on the meetings and we went down to talk to heather and everything and we did we had direct board approvals with a, for a budget to make a record so then we made it up at his studio uh, he was living in Perth then and had a studio up there then. So we made it there, recorded it there and then had our buddy El Stu Young. He came in really formidable engineer and uh, he, he mixed it with us. So I'm really proud of that record. I, I, I like that record a lot. I heard it recently and I thought, man, this, that's really, I think it's like it's the best Oyster record. You, you guys still in touch like uh, with all the rest of the band members? 
Uh, I have been late because we've got some business stuff we're trying to sort out, but um, not too much. I don't see I don't see anyone very much. We're pretty scattered, you know. And I'm I'm really kind of well, certainly the last year I haven't, and <clears throat> year and a half, <clears throat> and I'm really busy doing my own thing. Quite frankly, I'm doing I'm having way more fun now than I've ever had playing, and, and more creative than I've ever been. So. You know, at this point in my life, I just, you know, I'm really into telling my own story and I'm, I'm loving doing what I'm doing. So it's, like I say, more fun. And I get to really play a variety of stuff. You know, I'm doing lots of festivals and things like that. Or, you know, ideally I am. It must feel, uh, you must feel a little bit more free now that, that you're writing for Russell DeCarl and not writing with a band in mind. Well, I, I never wrote for the band. any. None, none of us really did, I don't think, you know. I think jo- J- Joan would have me in mind when she was writing because she could write for my voice. So, you know, she would write really interesting stuff for me to sing because I've got a pretty good range. And she would write fantastic melodies. And she's just such a musical person that <clears throat> I think she had me in mind writing some stuff. But or that she could hear me singing, but we really wrote for ourselves. We never really wrote for the band. That's interesting. And then you'd bring tunes. Yeah. It was ne- never that kind of deal. I mean, I was never that kind of writer. We're all going to write a Prairie Oyster song because people would say, well, I've got a perfect song for you guys. And then we'd go like, well, fuck, we don't know what the perfect Prairie Oyster song is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, your first record uh, under the big, big sky that comes out in 2010 while the band is still active. And you've now gone on to release three solo albums. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So what's uh what's what's it like you know the the difference for you in the studio making the solo records versus the days making the band records? Well, um, I'm producing for one thing. Um, or or I mean, John Sheard really produced it, but you know we worked together on the first record. But you know we're totally in this, we're in the same ballpark. Um, I have complete say on the material. I'm writing most of the material. Well, the second album I made, the um, um, uh, Russell Carl Trio record with Dennis Keldy and uh, Steve Briggs and myself, that was basically recorded live. And that was cover stuff that I'd been doing in my show, um, live show. And we record when it recorded that over a couple days live. In a studio. Um, but um, the other ones, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm writing the lion's share the material. I think I wrote everything but two songs on the, uh, on the, uh, under the big, big sky album. So it's, it's my material. And really picking the players, you know, doing the casting that I want to use. Um, the nice thing is, you know, I use, you know, great players, but they're all, they also, all those cats also play with me live, right? So it's not like I'm, I'm using, uh, uh, you know, just hired guns, right? The uh, the trio is really great. It's a, it's, it's nice little scaled back configuration with the, the guitar and the accordion. Uh, can you tell us about those fellas in the trio, how you sort of landed on having that as your, your show? Well, I sure can, yeah. I mean... Steve Briggs, who still plays with me all the time. I think I've only done two gigs without him in my whole, my solo career. But I I met Steve. Uh, he was playing with uh, well, he, a band called the Brothers Cosmoline and that uh, and uh, the Bebop Cowboys, of course, is his band. And I met him and um, I got a call in 2004 to do a tour opening for Merle Haggard. Uh, this guy Paul Merks, who was the promoter on the tour, he'd he had seen me do. Uh, I was on a songwriting tour, Coast to Coast uh or with a collection of people uh hayden neal and i did the whole thing hayden of course was the late great hayden neal from jack soul and uh we're in vancouver and paul had seen the thing in vancouver at the uh whatever i can't remember the theater now anyway he called me out of the blue one day and said man i'm doing this more hungry i saw you and he said i really loved what you're doing i'd love to have you i said oh do you want do you want a band he said no not really i said well a trio he said well maybe one other person so i thought Okay, so I, I thought that's just too good to be true. So I phoned a friend of mine, and, and he checked out. Certainly, he was on the up and up. It turned out I even met him years before this promoter. And great guy, Paul. And um, I had met Steve, and I think I did one a, a song at a – no, I was in a song pull at a Ontario Folk Alliance thing uh, at some point. And Steve had played a couple songs with me. I got him to play with me on a couple of songs. So the Merle trip was, it was amazing. We did 13 dates and 14 days. So that's where I met Steve really. And we really bonded because we had a lot of time to play. We played every day. We were hanging out in dressing rooms. So we had a you know 20 minute opening slot. So we were just sitting around playing guitar all the time. So we really bonded on that tour. So anyway, that's where Steve, <clears throat> how I really met him and we became pals. I'd known Dennis. Uh, Dennis had played on. Oh, he would sit in with Oyster a little bit, and he played on a couple of our records. Played played some accordion. I mean, Dennis is also one of the finest, uh, you know, uh, uh, or keyboard players too in the country. He's an amazing Hammond player and well organist, and just a great. He's a he's a great musician. So we toured in that configuration for quite a long time uh, with the two of those guys. I took them out with me, and it was really full. I mean, we had a huge groove, the three of us. That you know, we could play dances and. Uh, 
halls with that trail. It was it grooved so hard. It was fantastic. But, uh, that was a big for me. Merle Haggard, certainly my biggest influence. And you know, I mean, just the, well, I, you know, I could talk for days just about Merle alone, but his influence and just what an amazing cat and how he's loyal. It it allows you to play some more intimate venues, like and you know you're doing folk clubs and theaters and even house concerts and stuff like that. Like, do you enjoy playing those kind of rooms? Uh, that, totally. Is that something that you? Yeah. I love them, man. I love playing wherever people. I love house concerts, man. It's like in the, cause there's always some people there that you know they're sitting there and watching it and they can't believe it. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have only ever caught music in you know in theaters or big venues and they're distance from the artists and and. In, you know, we're, we're sociable, man. So we hang out with these people and it, it's just so much fun. I love play. If I'm playing, I play. And man, we put the same show on if we're playing for 20 people or if we're playing for 20,000 people, it doesn't matter. But, but this act also transcends to big stages. You know, the, the trio, you, now I'm using a string bass usually as well as, uh, and, and guitar. So it's a trio generally. And the odd time I'll add my buddy, John Sheard on piano. So four piece, but we groove really hard. Um, Steve and I have a huge group together and then, so even without dramas, man, we think. Um, are you uh, are you writing uh, often these days? Like, uh... yeah, for me, I am. I've never been like a real prolific writer, but I've written a lot of stuff in the past year. And uh, one of the things I really miss, you know, with being kind of housebound or not housebound, but like <clears throat> another kind of humans to bounce stuff off. But I feel like I've got the better part of an album written, I think. And uh, I don't know how it'll turn out, you know, if I start playing soon as other people. And uh, but I'm feeling pretty good about uh about what i've got some stuff that i've got here it's been again pretty eclectic who knows how how it'll turn out you know has uh, your approach changed over the years the way that you write tunes um not really i'm a way better guitar player i know a lot more chords so i've got way i've got a way you know much better bag of tricks it's not just cf and g you know i'm playing <clears throat> like also playing with steve briggs steve my guitar player is also one of the best te- he's an amazing teacher so i've learned so much from him man it's amazing so um playing you know I, mean, I play jazz standards and stuff like that now that kind of stuff and so that that really informs again what i do too uh having that um knowledge on guitar really helps my writing i think and uh because i'm a singer i tend to write stuff that's interesting for me to sing so i you know i really haven't lost any of my voice i can probably be a better singer now than i've ever been so that um i think that helps but uh but my approach not so much you know you noodle around in guitars and wait for something to come come to you something ideally a melody or something you start working on or some chords you start playing they should start to maybe suggest a, a a lyric or something you know it's still a mystery to me man oh yeah songwriting yeah do you uh do you ever miss playing bass uh, not very much. No, I'm just so into playing guitar, man. I, I, I really don't No, <laughs> Not many singing bass players though. You know, that, that was always a big draw. No, there weren't Gary Craig. When I played with Gary, who's a, one of the great drummers and, uh, uh, he played with us for a while and toured with us. And he used to say, man, you're like the country sting. It was funny. Uh, so do you got, do you, any, uh, any fa- favorite songs from the Prairie Oyster albums and from your solo albums? Wow. Um, you know, I always loved, and I uh, don't get a ton play. I love the tune Keith wrote uh, for Prairie Oyster. What album is that off of now? Um, uh, um, Blue, Blue Melody. Blue Melody. I love that song. And I love that as a record, just as a single record. I love that one. I love that that recording of that song. Uh, that's one of my faves, just to pick one. I mean, an Oyster thing, but there's you know lots of stuff that we did. And my own stuff, you said? Yeah. Man, I, I'm... Uh, on the last record, I've gone, oh God, I kind of like all those songs. I, I feel pretty, uh, pretty good about everything. There's nothing that I have no regrets about anything I recorded so far. So on my solo stuff, but maybe um, on the last one, Tanqueray was probably the big song on the last one. That's a nice that one. Song, Tanqueray. Thanks. Yeah. I'm, that's a, that's a, and uh, I'll do the title track alone in this crowd. After so many years of, of, you know, stage experience and big show experience, like has your preparation ahead of a show or a tour changed much over the years? I'm way more relaxed now, man. I'm, I'm having way more fun playing. I'm relaxed. I get to tell my own story. Um, you know, if, if a line works, something works, a story or something, I'll tell that again. But, you know, mostly I play at the audience and I'm, 
I'm just way more comfortable, you know? I mean, there was a time when you're younger and you forget a lyric and, oh my God, you get so nervous and then you start thinking about it and geez, you break into a cold sweat and you start forgetting stuff right and left and you're like, oh, what am I doing here? Now you, you make a joke out of it, right? It's just like, it's, it's, you know, people come to see you and they want to hear stories. I've got stories for every song that I do. If I, you know, I can tell, you know, I'm kind of emotionally connected to everything I do. Even the, all the, one of the great things, things I love about doing my own thing is I get to do my material, which I could do of, whole night of my own stuff but <clears throat> i still do some obscure cover stuff that i just love to do i get to do whatever i you know i, I want so it's um i have a huge repertoire i hardly ever use a set list so i'll just i'll just play the crowd and pull them out you know people people still ask you to do prairie oyster songs uh sometimes uh you know i was i was nervous about that when i first started doing my own show i remember the first kind of big show i did it was at a Hall out in Bragg Creek, Alberta, and you know that was kind of you know Alberta's always been huge to, for oyster. I thought, oh man, and, and you know I had had a sold out show there. And I thought, oh man, it was with the trio with Dennis and Caldy uh, and uh, Steve Briggs, and <clears throat> I thought, man, I hope all these people aren't expecting me to come out here and do oyster material because at first I wasn't really doing any at all when I um, started doing my own thing because I didn't really feel feel like it was fair me going out and doing oyster material. Meanwhile, you know, not doing oyster shows. Um, <clears throat> But man, the people lined up afterwards and they were just like happy to see me and happy to hear me. And I think a lot of people liked the fact that I was playing in a, it, um, these shows really feature my voice because it's not like I'm not singing over a six piece band and drums and stuff, you know? Yeah. And uh, they love that. And I think they just love the intimacy. Now I do some, some of the, oyster. I do stuff that I wrote, the Oyster. Um, I'd such a lonely one usually, and I'll do uh, one way track. They're both really big hits and a few other things that I wrote. It, it must be nice though be, for you now because uh you know during the heyday of the band it, it was it would have been you know there would have been pressure it was a business you know in in a different way than it is now i guess oh yeah i mean you know there was we had, we had a lot we had a lot of people to pay man we had crews and buses and yeah, management and yeah yeah it was, a, it was a huge deal but it's expensive to be successful truly and it's a band you know i mean so it's like you know it isn't like you know you we ended up with uh, any money in the bank at the end, end of end of, end of the the end of that band because i mean everybody else got paid first and <clears throat> uh, bands just generally don't you know i kind of feel like an old hockey player sometimes i see what some of these uh young acts are, are charging now for festivals and stuff canadian acts it's like man i feel like one of those old hockey players that like <laughs> yeah. jesus man I, I wouldn't have mounted a piece of that man yeah to do five shows for that money yeah yeah, exactly. So when you were, when you've been, you know, I guess pre-pandemic, uh, you were, you were touring pretty, pretty steady. Like how long were you guys going out as a trio on those tours? Well, quite a lot. And, and it wasn't as a trio the last few years I've been doing mostly Steve and I would go out and I have a really great bass player, Jeremy Holmes, that I use out of uh, Vancouver if I'm playing Western dates. Here I use a great guy by the name of Russ Boswell mostly and John Sheard on some dates as well. So any odd time I would add another player, uh, my buddy Paul Pagat, who's one of the great guitar players in Canada. Oh, yeah. He's and awesome. uh, a great solo artist has a, an act called uh, Cousin Harley, plus does a bunch of other stuff. And I've done some stuff. I used Paul on some stuff as well, which is pretty, pretty great to have he and Steve together. It's a, that's a masterclass, man. Those two playing together. It's amazing. So, uh, how have you been spending the last year at, at home? Uh, well, uh, playing a lot of guitar, writing a bit. Uh, there's always tons of work to do here. So, uh, you know, it's like a, you know, a kind of rundown house that's just always work to do in the house and barns and shops. And, uh, I um I kind of wheel and deal some stuff too, and I've I've always been into kind of collectible stuff, but um vehicles, things like that. And oh, there's, yeah. there's work to do in the bush here, and tons of gardening, and yeah, always lots to do. You think that uh, when it all sort of returns to whatever normal is, that you'll you'll head back out on the road pretty hard again? I sure I sure hope I can, but boy, there's going to be some kind of competition because everybody's going to want to do that. But I sure hope I sure hope I I do, man. I'm I'm so ready. I miss the traveling as much as the playing. Really, this is the longest I've been home in 49 years. Yeah, I bet. Like I I, under, I understand what you mean. Like uh, uh you know a long drive seems really attractive to me. I right love now. it. I love being on the road. <laughs> yeah. People don't like it at all. Now I love it. Steve and I call. Well, Dennis Kelly coined that the term uh, "turcations," man, and they re they really are. They're fantastic. <laughs> yeah, someone asked me, you know, do you miss do you miss uh, you know playing? It's like, I say I kind of miss just shooting the shit before the set as much as I, I miss oh, singing. Oh no, the hang, the yeah. singing, the hang, and all of it, man. Yeah, totally. And you know, you, we get to meet. We get that we're just so fortunate. We get to meet the greatest people, and uh, you know, it's a especially you know doing one. It's you know constant stimulation. You know, you never know where you're gonna end up 
it's, it's fantastic. It's, an, it's always an adventure, right? You said that uh, Alberta was particularly kind to Prairie Oyster. How about with your solo stuff? Where are you finding uh, Amazing to me, man. Alberta? Um, Alberta, Alberta and BC for me. I have a great scene out there, man. It's incredible. Yeah, I have an incredible scene in Alberta. Yeah, they got the folk club thing happening pretty good out there. It's amazing. And, you know, they always have. And there was kind of a handful of people who really started making that thing work. Uh, friends like my buddy Pete North, uh, who's uh, <clears throat> he was a journalist for years and a DJ and Oh, he's just a real impresario, musical and a real man. He helped to really, you know, they would bring and and Holger Peterson. Anyway, a whole host of people. Um, but there's a kind of a handful of people out there that really created a scene. I feel in, in Alberta, they were bringing people in like all these great singer songwriters that never would show up in Ontario, right? And uh, they really educated the province, you know. And then they, of course, they have CK uh, CKUA, which is this fantastic radio station with all these, you know, just great programming that people get to hear well it's kind of like you were you were saying like when you were growing up like ckua is sort of a, a throwback to that you're going to hear all kinds it of is different totally, music. Yes. Yeah, yeah yeah and then there's the country scene out there it's always been a big country scene too so we we kind of we were lucky with oyster and uh, you know we got to straddle both those scenes the country scene we played the country scene and got played on country but we also could go play the edmonton folk festival right so we were really lucky we were one of the few bands that could actually do that i think in the country scene could really straddle both those scenes legitimately because mm-hmm. we were such a rootsy group and now i don't do too much of the country stuff but um now it's for me it's it is mostly those folk music fests and things like that that i play or in blues festivals even you know i can go do a blues fest or a jazz fest you still listen to country music like you said merle was your one of your main main favorites you know going to i listen to that stuff i don't really listen i don't i i haven't heard any modern stuff that really just doesn't move me in, in a way that i want to be moved <laughs> <laughs> not in a good way anyway not really yeah it doesn't uh that just doesn't do it for me uh, most of it i don't like it sonically a lot of it and uh uh the songs i'm not really crazy about a lot of material and i then i look at this material and it's kind of like man it's like you know six writers on one song and I don't hear the voices either that, you know, everybody had really had their own thing going on years ago, like their own personality, you know, and uh, I just, just don't hear, hear that. So I'm, I'm all, I've just got my ears open, man. I'm always, you know, hoping to be, hope you hear something that really turns my crank, but, uh, but no pop. Country radio does nothing for me. Uh, I spoke to Carol Baker, and she said something very similar. She said uh, they're just like uh, repa- it's like Campbell's soup. Like they're just everyone sounds the same, everything's the same. And you know, there was a time when yeah. you were expected to have your own kind of sound. Yeah, you're. All, I mean, when you think about the old singer, you, you knew who, man, everybody, Buck Owens or Merle or you know, how well, on and on, even you know, later on. But it, yeah, it's just now. Yeah. Is is there any uh, current acts like, uh, you know, I guess outside of country music or even, you know, rootsier bands that, that you're digging on these days? Like what kind of stuff are you listening to now? You know, mostly singer songs. I still listen to old stuff. If, if I'm listening to stuff like, I mean, I'm I'm still stuck in like well, I, I'm still discovering stuff by Don Gibson. To me, was truly there was like the triple threat. He was like a great guitar player, really at his own groove one of the great singers of all time and truly one of the great songwriters of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a guy that wrote, I can't stop loving you. And all lonesome me in the same afternoon, man, you know, like for real. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, guys like cats like that, you know, and yeah, there, there's young people, you know, that I, that I really dig um, artists, you know, you know, like, uh, you know, like guys like Corb, who's really got his own thing going on. I think he's got his own thing. I really dig him a lot. Um, um, Again, if I start naming people, I'm going to forget a bunch. So it's, but mostly young, what I what I consider rootsy folk artists, you know, I really dig a lot, have their own thing going on. Yeah, it's it's out there if you, if you know, if you guys like Corn Raymond, you know, people like that, and uh, Scott Cook, you know, who are truly, I don't know if you know those guys. I man, do, yeah. They're the real deal, those guys, man. They're real singer songwriters, so cast and it really moved move me a lot. Well, man, I, I hope that uh, I hope that when things kind of return to normal, that you guys can get back out on the road and doing your thing. I think people will be eager to hear all of their favorite acts and uh, and whoever else, you know. And, and that's, I guess, a benefit of having the scaled down duo or trio is, you know, you're adaptable. Yeah, it's oh no, it's you know, if we'd wanted to do Oyster again, we couldn't afford to do it, man. We couldn't afford to fly six people around. Yeah. And like literally, it's just it's just gotten so so crazy that stuff. Yeah. Let's get a couple guys in the van, and you're good to go. Truly. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, man. Yeah, well, hey, man, uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I got to say, my, my old man, like I said, he was a picker. He uh, uh, held real value on a singing bass player, and that was my dream. And I really looked up to, to you, and I was really a big fan of uh, Philip Linnett and Thin Lizzy and, and Roger Waters. I oh, yeah, this, man. Yeah, the singing bass player. And I did it for, you know, for a long time until I sort of, same as you, kind of transitioned into playing solo or fronting a band on guitar and uh, but anyways, I always wanted to tell you that it's a real pleasure to, to talk to you, man. Thanks, pal. Hey, how long have you lived out there? I've been here for eight years. Wow. How'd you end up there? I met a gal. Wow. It's a great town. Prairie people, man. I, I just love the, there's a whole, there's something about the Prairie, man. They're stoic a lot, man. I, I have so much admiration. I spent so much of my career out there in, in Alberta or in Saskatchewan and, uh, and, and Manitoba. And there's no place I'd rather be in the summer, man. The air and the light out there, man, on the prairies. I was a late bloomer. Go- I was a late bloomer going west, and um, that's what that song really is about. The under the big big sky kind of that song is kind of pays homage to <clears throat> that the big sky country man. And you know, I was people would go on about the Rockies and how boring the prairies were, and I kind of find the I found the opposite. I find boy, I tell people, man, a place where you can really be alone with your thought, man. <laughs> it's a, it's um it's a just so I man, I love the big sky, man. I don't know where I'll play them, but man, I need to do a show out there. That's for sure. Yeah, man. Um, I will be at some point when the smoke clears, man. I'll keep you posted. Stay in touch, man. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Russell. Great to talk to you, man. Thank you, pal. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Russell DeCarl. Sincere thanks to Russell for taking the time to share parts of his story with us. What a thrill that was for me. Prairie Oysters albums and a portion of Russell's solo releases are available wherever you stream music for a nominal monthly fee. Or check them out at russelldecarl.com. Follow along with the Northern Report Spotify playlist. You'll hear music from the folks that I've covered in the Honky Tonk Times column, as well as right here on the podcast. Remember to subscribe and follow, share, like, give us a rating, all that stuff. Thanks to everybody that's been doing that. Our logo was created by Boots Graham of Boots and the Hoots, Central Alberta's finest honky-tonkers. Music on the show today courtesy of Sean Burns and Lost Country, The Divorcees, and Skinny Dick. From local legends to regional stars to the cream of the Canadian crop, you'll find it all here on the Northern Report. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll chat later. Hey. You got something for me? Oh, uh, no, I'm still just the spokesman of loneliness that I always was.